another day has begun. Will it be any different than a thousand days before it and at least hundreds more to come? Morton Dean, CBS News, Firebase Khatoum, South Vietnam. From CBS News headquarters in New York, this is the CBS Evening News with Morton Dean. This is ABC News Nightline. Substituting for Ted Koppel and reporting from New York, Morton Dean. Hi, I'm Russ Mason. Morton Dean was a news correspondent and anchorman at CBS for 20 years beginning midway through the 1960s before moving on to ABC News for an additional 14 years until his departure in 2001. Just last year, he completed a documentary entitled American Medevac, which has been seen on various PBS stations around the country, and I'll be talking with him about that project, which grew out of his experience as a war correspondent in Vietnam in 1971. But he began his career as a journalist by working at several radio stations, and at the outset of our conversation, I asked him to recall a couple of stories from those days. When I was working at this little radio station, which no longer exists in Mount Kisco, New York, a short distance from New York City, I thought that I wanted to get some credibility as a foreign correspondent. And the only way to do that was to go off on my vacations, pay my own way, and travel to some interesting parts of the world. And Cuba was happening. Fidel had just taken over, and I uh, booked myself a passage to Miami and from Miami to Havana and went down on my own and hung, hung out in Cuba. And uh, I, I spent, uh, actually uh, did two trips to Cuba when I, when I was just a young kid, and one of them I uh, had heard that, that uh, Che Guevara was going to be speaking to a big crowd at the uh, one of the big theaters in Havana. So I uh, went over there with my uh, big tape recorder and walked into the auditorium, which was jammed, and sat down, and Che Guevara got up, and he began to speak. And just at that time, the person sitting next to me kind of elbowed me and, and pointed and said that uh, some gentlemen were uh, gesturing to me. And uh, I, I looked up, and there were some guys in suits who wanted me to come up to where they were in the car in the uh, aisle. And I began to get a little worried about that, and decided I wasn't going to go. So they started moving up the aisle and came toward me and um, asked me to go with them. And I went. And when we got outside, there were men with guns and six cars with darkened windows, and I was off on a brief adventure. I remember listening to you tell this story where you ended up at a baseball game where Fidel was pitching or something. Yeah, one time I uh, I went to a baseball game where Fidel was pitching, and he was all dressed up in a, in a baseball uniform. And it was said that he was a pretty good pitcher back when he was in college and that an American baseball team was interested in signing him. But that has been disputed in recent years. So I was in the audience with the young lady I had uh, asked uh, to come with me to be my interpreter. And at the end of one inning, he, Fidel had just, uh, well, he was striking out everybody because no matter where he threw the ball, 
the umpire would yell, strike, and the crowd would go wild and fire guns and all that sort of thing. So I, um, I said, come on with me and stay with me. And we walked down to the edge of the field. There was a bit of a wall around the field. And at the end of the inning, I said, come on, and jumped out onto the field and started moving towards Fidel, who was leaving the mound. And I was not very well schooled in the wor- ways of the world. And I had no idea that many people out there would think that this was a possible assassination attempt. There's this guy with this funny-looking box moving towards Fidel, and people with guns came running and his guards, and they began to push me away. And my Spanish was not very good, and I just started yelling, Fidel, Fidel. And and he stopped and turned, and I said, the truth, the truth. And... uh, He said, the truth, who wants to know the truth? The truth about what? And I said, about you, because back then there was a lot being written that he was a communist, and some people were uh, writing uh, in dispute of that. So I said, about you, about you, and we started moving towards one another, and then surrounded by guys with guns, uh, Fidel and I uh, uh, had an interview and standing next to him was uh, Camillo Cienfuegos, who was one of the three commandantes, along with Che of the revolution. And uh, he, he was the catcher, so he came out and he was standing there listening to this, and it was a great moment in my life. Yeah, and Fidel didn't speak English, or did he? Well, he did. Uh, he, he spoke some English, yes, and I spoke very little Spanish. But on occasion, I'd say English, please, and he would uh, talk in English. And uh, it, it, the, the, the tape, the, the audio tape was really, really a mess. But, you know, I had him, and, uh, and I was able to put together a little uh, one-minute, two-minute piece for the radio station and send it back to Mount Kisco, New York. But it, it, was, it was a thrill just being there and... Uh, uh, the fact that I was able to pull it off was just just amazing. Then a year later, I ended up in in, in jail when I went to see uh, and listen to um, to Che Guevara talking. And we'll save the details of exactly what happened during your arrest for later. But happily, you survived that experience and your other adventures in Cuba. And then gradually, you made the transition from radio to television. Yes, my first television job was at the CBS affiliate in in New York City. I, um, as a radio reporter in Boston for a couple of years, I had been on TV maybe two or three times. Once when I captured a killer and the TV people thought that that would make a good television story. And on occasion, they would send me down to do some interviews in Washington with a TV camera. But my first uh, real TV job was uh, in New York on WCBS-TV. And then uh, a couple of years after that, I arrived there. I was walking down the corridor at the broadcast center, and I heard a familiar voice call to me, uh, Hey, kid. And it was uh, Mike Wallace, who was a big star even then. And I, I said, Oh, hi, Mike. How are you? And he said, How would you like to work for the network? And I, uh, within a few months, was working for the CBS network. A big moment in my life. So was Mike Wallace sort of a mentor to you? Well, I had uh, I had done some freelance work um, for him before he got to the network as a researcher. 
researching interviews. Uh, he had an interview show in New York on some obscure station. And uh, so I, I, I sort of knew him. And uh, yeah, I thought of him as as, as a, a a mentor early on, but he you know played a major role in in getting my network career going. And becoming one of CBS's reporters then led you just a few years later to Vietnam. Can you talk about how that happened? Yeah, every, almost everybody, not everybody, but almost everybody who, who worked as a, a news guy at, at CBS was uh, had gone to Vietnam, was about to go to Vietnam. And I was asked to go to Vietnam by the the guy who was in charge of assignments at, at CBS News, a fellow by the name of Ralph Passman, a, a great guy, no longer with us. And I said to him that my wife was pregnant with our first child. And as soon as the child arrived, I'd go. Well, he kept asking me, uh, when is that child going to arrive? And he got so upset with me one day, he had quite a temper. Uh, and he, he said, I, I don't even, I don't think your, your wife's going to have a child. I bet you're not even married. I mean, he was just so distressed that I had said I couldn't go yet. But shortly after uh, my son arrived, I shipped off to Vietnam. And uh, by then, you know, many other correspondents had already been there. And once you got there, how did you decide where to go and what sort of stories to cover? We got our assignments two ways, either by sensing that there was a story somewhere or hearing about a story, and then we'd just try to travel, uh, hop a helicopter, uh, hop a truck, and find our way to to the story. Or we would hear from New York that there had been a story on the wire services or in, in a newspaper, and would you check check it out? And do you recall how the story that became the basis for your documentary came about? I had gone with my cameraman, Fred Cook, and soundman, uh, Mr. Ahn, that went on. And we, we were traveling up country and found ourselves in Da Nang. Wasn't quite sure what the story was going to be, but there was a lot going on. It was not difficult to find the story. And somehow, we ended up in a briefing and a military briefing, and they were briefing what was going to take place later that day. And I was sitting there with Greg Cook, the camera guy, and uh, Mr. Ron, the sound man. And the colonel, I believe it was, was briefing, and he was talking about the you know, insertion that was going to take place. And I said to Greg, hey, why don't we get on that, Greg? And he said, no, I don't think we want to go there. So I said, okay. And then the briefing officer said... Um, was, was telling the infantry uh, officers um, that there would be medevac standing by. And I said to Greg, let's go on a medevac. And he said, well, okay. So we walked out, and the pilot was uh, uh, suiting up, and he was just about to climb into the chopper. And I went over to him and, and said, hey, how would you like to take us? Uh, we're with CBS News. Can we go with you? And he just kind of looked at me very quizzically and said, you want to fly with us? And I said, yes, we do. And he said, well, come on. And that looked as if we were just crazy because it wasn't something that you were allowed to do. And I guess not too many people wanted to fly on medevacs going out to rescue wounded people in some of the troubled parts of the country. So that's, that's how that all happened. 
This story then aired on the CBS Evening News on January 22, 1971. Here's Walter Cronkite's introduction, followed by the portion of the story that was focused on the rescue mission itself. In this report, Morton Dean refers to the flight as dust-off, which was the tactical call sign used throughout the Vietnam War for most medical evacuation missions. The focus of the Indochina War has shifted to Cambodia, but American ground troops are still being killed and wounded in South Vietnam. The U.S. casualty toll is not as high these days, but this has not lessened the painful impact on those men who have the critical assignment of bringing back the fallen GIs. From Morton Dean, we have this report. Several uniformed North Vietnamese regulars are spotted by the medic. He and the crew chief return their fire. Okay, we've got our three wounded GIs on board. At least one of them is hit pretty bad. We took a little fire on the way out of this pickup area. The medic is beginning to do his job. We should be back at the uh, at Hawk Hill in about 15 minutes right now. The medic's got a very but it's got a busy, busy few minutes ahead of him before we get back to Hawk Hill. Dustoff has returned. Later, the diagnosis. Yes, they will live. They are fortunate they will not lose their limbs. One man will need to have a portion of his face reconstructed. Now close to 50 years later, the documentary American Medevac follows Morton Dean's efforts to find and then reunite the soldiers who were on that flight. Here's a portion of Dean's introduction to the documentary. Sometimes their lives depend on you. I mean, you hold it in your hands. I mean, it's medic. It's just hard to say, but right then you hold life and death in your hands. Over the years, I've often wondered what's become of them. Kids, actually, who came from the heartland of America to the heat of battle, risking their own lives to save others. Did the trauma of combat leave a lasting impression to this day? And the search began. How do you find all these guys? In the end, Dean was able to find six of the soldiers, including all three of the ones that were wounded and had to be rescued that day, Jim Kasenich, Brian Fahili, and Bill Formanak. He also located both the pilot and co-pilot of the helicopter, Bob Brady, and Dan Stevenson, as well as the dust-off crew's operations chief, Ken Miller, who wasn't on the rescue mission himself, but was interviewed as a part of the overall story. And it was Miller who suggested that Morton Dean should try to reunite all of them. You flew us to Da Nang after the story, as far as uh, what we uh, knew of it, was, was over. When I remember when it was time to go, you said something to me that was like, you guys are nuts. This is really, 
this is pretty incredible stuff. And that was very positive to us because from my perspective, the, the heroes were the guys trampling around wondering if they were going to step on a landmine. We never knew who we picked up, and the people who we picked up never knew who picked them up. If those guys ever had a chance to meet each other, that could be really, really phenomenal. In American Medivac, we get to see that finally take place, and we talked about those reunions during our recent phone conversation. The pilot and co-pilot had never really met any of the people they rescued. It was like a 9-11 call. They would get the call, they would go out and drop the guys off at some aid station somewhere, and that was it. And I thought it would be wonderful if we could bring some of these people together. So the pilot and co-pilot met one at a time, each of the three people who were rescued uh, during that story, during that mission that we covered. Yeah, th those are great reunions. I've watched the documentary two or three times now, and uh, the pleasure that uh, all those guys take in finally getting to meet each other so many years later, when, you know, they were only together there for the few minutes that it took for them to be rescued and brought back to the to the hospital area. That, that is true, yeah. They were only, it was a few minutes in a lifetime, but obviously, and you hear and see this in the documentary, it's a time that no one forgot, no one. And there was one fella who was interviewed in the original story by the name of Delmar Pickett, who unfortunately died before you made the documentary. But I discovered uh, that you went to Kansas back in 1971, found him, and he was back in school at Kansas State University, and you interviewed him. Do you remember? I, I remember every, every second of, of all the time I spent with those guys. And what struck me when, when I got to see Delmar Pickett, who lived in a, uh, it was a perfect setting for a TV piece because it was this windswept plains in Kansas, uh, a dog barking in the distance somewhere when we arrived at the house. And there was Delmar Pickett, the medic, who had flown did two tours in Vietnam and had flown so many rescue missions that his room was up in the attic of this old farmhouse. And uh, he was in college, and he said what was most frustrating when he got back from the armed forces, uh, from service in Vietnam, two tours, that he couldn't get into medical school, even though he was a medic in Vietnam. And uh, so he, he just decided to try to seek out something else. And he was making models of soldiers. He was a pretty good artist. And uh, he showed us how he was, uh, he would, he would fashion them in, out of clay and then fire them up in a stove in his mother's kitchen. And he showed us some beautiful, beautiful soldiers. And they said, but they're all from wars other than Vietnam. I, I just can't bring myself to, to uh, make models of soldiers to serve with me. He said, someday, maybe, maybe I will. I, uh, 
I had trouble reaching, finding Del Mar. I'd reached everybody else. And I finally got a phone number off of um, the, the, the web of a picket somewhere in Kansas, and, and I called. And a woman answered, and I said simply, I don't know whether I have the correct phone number, but I'm looking for someone by the name of Delmar Ticket, who was a medic in, in Vietnam, and I, I met him there. And this woman, in a very, very soft voice, said, yes, you do have the correct number. This is Delmar Pickett's number. I am his wife. Del died yesterday. Oh, mercy. Kind of a, it, it, it was stunning, and he had, he had been yeah. ill for a while. And yeah. I had met his wife, and we talk every now and then. Here is the concluding portion of Morton Dean's 1971 profile of Delmar Pickett Jr., whose nickname was J.R., which aired on the CBS Evening News that December. I couldn't see no gain. No gain at all for all the guys that died. I mean, I fought in some places five or six times in the same very spot, in the same situation, like just like a nightmare, over and over and over again. And I couldn't see no sense. Take the top exam, answer it, you're right. Although disheartened by what he saw over there and disturbed by the reaction back here, he was not diverted from his main goal, an education. Pickett, now 23 years old, using the GI Bill, enrolled at the State University in nearby Manhattan, Kansas, majoring in anthropology. A good student now, mostly A's, the rest B's. He and his family agree J.R. is hardly the same boy who dropped out before he flunked out in his freshman year and joined the Army. Oh, I think he's more settled. Uh, he knows more what he wants to do now than, than he did before he went. Uh, he's got a goal in mind now, I think, that he wants to do. He never missed a day this semester, which I think is real good. It's quite different before. Yes, he didn't have his heart in it then. He didn't know what he wanted to do. Well, he never, he never stayed at home uh, before. No. Pickett never understood why other GIs took drugs or smoked pot. He even shuns alcohol and began to puff on a pipe or draw on a cigar only when particularly dangerous missions upset him, and there were so many. He is but one of over two and a half million U.S. servicemen who have spent some time in Vietnam, and we don't know whether his experiences, his reactions, classify him as a typical GI or not. We do know that when so many other GIs were losing their way, Delmar Pickett Jr. of Oldsburg, Kansas, somehow was able to find his. Morton Dean, CBS News, Oldsburg, Kansas. Earlier, Morton Dean described how he and his camera and sound men were able to hitch a ride on the Medivac helicopter that carried Delmar Pickett out to rescue three wounded GIs. But Dean also tells of a different encounter with another helicopter pilot, Skipper Hiscock, who had a different initial reaction to seeing a CBS News crew filming him as he returned to Quezon after a particularly dangerous rescue mission. Uh, we saw this helicopter sweeping in for a landing, and there was a wounded crewman on board. And uh, people came running out of the hospital to get this guy uh, they had called from the helicopter, and the pilot saw the crew, and he came over, and he wanted to punch us out. He was telling, get out of here, get out of here, what are you doing here? 
And um, I grabbed hold of him, literally, and uh, calmed him down and uh, got to talk with him. And his name was uh, Skipper Hiscock, Stephen Hiscock. And uh, we, we talked and we uh, interviewed him. And then the next morning, he was just loading up his uh, helicopter and about the board. And uh, he referred to the guy who was his co-pilot the day before who had been wounded and said, I'm going back out to find the guys who did that. And he took off and we filmed that and he never came back. He was 19 years old. And while on a mission to or try to locate who had shot and wounded his buddy, uh, he was shot down. So when I got back to uh, New York, um, some months after doing the interview with Skipper Hiscock, I I got a message from uh, his his mother, and uh, she said she wanted to uh, send me a note. And I have the note right here, and it says, "Dear Mister Dean." You interviewed our son, Stephen Hiscock, shortly before he was shot down in Laos. The interview was on national television, and we will be forever grateful that we saw him so well and happy. It's my understanding that you had a lengthy conversation with our son. We would like so much to talk with you about this meeting. And then she said, would I please call her? right to her and uh, also added if you are ever in Atlanta, Georgia we would would you please contact us sign this is Robert Hiscock and uh, I uh, I did I contacted them first by mail and I'll read just a little bit of this for you it's dated July 7th 1971 New York City dear Mrs. Hiscock I am embarrassed by my delay in answering your letter. It arrived in Saigon just as I was preparing to come home. I did have the opportunity to meet Stephen, the kind of young man you meet and don't forget, a compelling personality, obviously the most popular man in his group. And as you correctly stated in your letter, after seeing the interview with him, he was happy. And he was also very proud of the job he performed. There could not have been a more enthusiastic chopper pilot in all of Vietnam. And that led to um, to a friendship. Skipper Hiscock's mother and father and his younger sister became friends with mine. They traveled to the New York area to spend some time with me. And I traveled on a number of occasions to Atlanta and spent time with his family. And... Uh, and did a follow-up story at one point with his sister and his parents. And remember Betty Hiscock, Skipper's mother, walking us in through the house in Atlanta, opening a door to a bedroom. And she said, this is Skipper's bedroom. It's just the way it was, just the way he left it when he went off to the war. I just haven't had the heart to change anything. That's such a moving story and an appropriate place to begin to draw this episode to a close, I think. In our next News Knowledge episode, we'll continue our conversation with Morton Dean, find out what happened after he was jailed in Cuba in 1959, 
discuss other aspects of his lengthy television career, and learn more about his new documentary, American Medevac. Here's a preview of Dean's explanation of his motivation for creating it. I'm 83 years old now, and I feel that if there's a calling, I have an opportunity now to talk to people who have served in war and to go back and talk to people I met during wars and who are now back home and to interview them about what it was like and how intense it was and how it has affected their life now. And to do this as a way of telling those Americans who have never been to war zones and showing them, you know, what war is really like and how once you're in a war and have fought in a war, your life has changed forever. It's clear that Morton Dean's work with Vietnam veterans has had a lasting impact on him and the people he's crossed paths with. And we're pleased to be able to play a small part in allowing people to connect to the past and remember those important events in their lives. I'm Russ Mason, and for all of us here at the Vanderbilt Television News Archive, we thank you for listening.